Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow of Manhattan Institute, tripping the editor of City Journal. And Charles, how are you doing today? You know, I'm good. I I was I was was it yesterday? No, it was two days ago. It's Friday now. Geez, I I took my kid to the allergist on Wednesday. All all children these days have are allergic to everything. That's just like it's 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 part of you know the the microplastics in the water or whatever. All the all the seed oils that I feed him make him allergic to everything. No, uh, uh, he it was actually a good development. Like he used to turn bright red whenever he ate like milk products and egg products, and this is no longer true. But we like go to an allergist. But he had a great time because he got to leave daycare early and then they can't. So 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 the way the allergy explained it to me, our insurer does not allow her to both consult with me and test in the same appointment. So I found myself in a situation where my kid got to sit there and like entertain himself on my phone while I talked to the allergist for half an hour. And then she was like, well, you can come back later and we can test. But I was like, great, just what I needed. I don't have anything else going on in my life. Why, 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 why would your insurance do this? It's really unclear to me. It seems like this is a peculiarity of, of, of my insurance. I promise, I promise listeners, we're, we're working this into a segue. This peculiarity of, of my particular insurer. No, it's, 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 it's one of those oddities of, you run into this phenomenon, right? Like, like, you know, something weird happens with reimbursement. Yeah. Yeah. Is you know, this 73 different this, places? Is this, is this. Employer provided insurance. By... Employer provided. Insurance. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so, on Medicaid. So really, so indirectly, it's it's what you're saying is maybe the Manhattan Institute gave you kind of a shitty plan. It's pretty good. Actually, pretty good That's insurance. Good. Yeah, I I generally like my insurance, except for the except for this. Why don't we Why don't we speaking of insurance? Why don't we Why don't we talk a little bit about tell tell listeners what we're what we're interested in this week? Just the topic. We're interested in healthcare some, and health insurance. This is something that I know exactly zero about. This is true of everybody, by the way. There were there were there were six people in America who understand the American healthcare system, right? And Charles maybe knows like one or two units more than I do. Maybe more. Maybe I should say like ten units more because I really know nothing. Depends on the scale. But in the grand scheme of things, but in the grand scheme of things, I think it's safe to say neither of us knows really anything about it we just have philosophical intuitions and no general what what do you know about it charles come on come on no no well i mean i think you know i i put what i'm talking about today is and and we'll get to our thoughts in a second but our our guest wrote a piece that i was reading in advance of this interview where he made the point that um american reporters simultaneously say america's a great fantastic healthcare system and look at the quality of the services that we receive and also america has a terrible horrible healthcare system and looking at the cost of the services that we receive and both of those things are simultaneously true. It's 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 both the case that Americans have access to a lot of world-class care that you couldn't get in many other countries, and also that Americans pay a lot of extra money for our health insurance in a way that we that people in other countries don't. A, there's obviously a relationship there, but B, it's a little more complicated. But you know, I'm 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 interested in healthcare here. You know, it's 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 always sort of a live component of broader political debate. It's sort of a a, a space for more technocratic monkey wrenching or subject to more technocratic monkey wrenching than I think a lot of other regulatory or a lot of other policy areas are. Um, and as a result, everyone has very strong feelings about a system that mostly nobody understands. And I think that produces often very bizarre policy prescriptions wildly out of whack with with how the system actually works. 
Yeah, I mean, well, well, ditto on not understanding it, but I, all I can really say is that I am generally very interested in the question of rationing and how different kinds of healthcare systems ration care. Obviously, the, the criticism of places like Britain with the NHS and other forms of socialized medicine is that they do a lot of very overt and extreme rationing, which has caused a lot of political scandals. But, you know, the counter argument you hear from lefties as well the U.S. system rations care, it just does so in this kind of Byzantine, you know, hybrid of, of markets, public and private insurance way, but it still is effectively the rationing care. The only question is kind of what what agent is doing the rationing and how is it rationed? I guess I, I'm, I'm generally interested in both how to make rationing decisions more rational and better and then relatedly, how to make them more explicit, because it seems to me that the lack of explicitness in who's doing the rationing or how it's rationed is maybe part of the problem. But again, I really, truly do not know anything whatsoever <laughs> about this. I'm very stupid when it comes to healthcare. So Charles, why don't you introduce our guest? Nate? <laughs> And then by the end of this conversation, I will totally you, understand the you're US. You're going to be incredibly literate. No, I think you will. That's part of why I wanted to have our guest on, because I think he's very good at explaining these things. Our guest is Chris, my colleague, Chris Pope. Chris is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. No, surprise, surprise. Where his research focuses on healthcare payment policy. And he's recently published reports on hospital market regulation, entitlement design, and insurance market reform. His work has appeared in, among others, The Wall Street Journal, Health Affairs, US News and World Report, and Politico. Chris, welcome to Institutionalized. Hey, Charles. Aaron. Good to be here. Yeah. So, so we like to sort of start with a provocative question. And, and I think here I, I, I want to ask you, many people think that American healthcare is really bad. Like, you know, if I go outside right now, somebody will be dying on the sidewalk because of uninsurance. It's very bad. How bad is American healthcare really? Well, I think the big difference that you can really point to is that there are no absolute guarantees in American healthcare. The way that some countries will say, you know, we have a national healthcare service. This is the place that will give you A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like we don't have something like that. But what we do have is at the same time, we don't provide any absolute guarantees. We have no absolute limit, no absolute sort of rationing limit on this is what we don't provide to you. And so what we actually have is a whole system of different levels and different layers and they're the kind of complement each other. So you have employer-sponsored insurance. If you don't have employer-sponsored insurance, you can be eligible for Medicare if you're elderly or disabled, you can be eligible for Medicaid if you're low income, you can purchase coverage from the individual market, you could get subsidies from the individual market. If you don't have insurance, you could get care from a hospital. Essentially, the hospital will pay for you if you have a low enough income, or they could subsidize the, the, the care, or they can provide it to you and charge you some degree later. And so we have this kind of messy mix of all these different systems that means that you can't actually sort of say, we have this absolute guarantee across the board, but we actually have not just one hand helping people, the government, you have all these different sort of arrangements that I would say add up to more than just one particular guarantee. The flip side though is because there is no absolute guarantee, it certainly is the case that in many, in many situations, people will fall between the cracks and Many in a country of 300 million people, or even a few in a country of 300 million people can be a lot of people. 
and a lot of anecdotes. And there were certainly many cases in which people end up facing big bills or less access to care than they might wish to have. But I, I would say overall, if you just kind of look at an aggregate sort of fair data comparison point of view, our quality of care across the board is better. Our out-of-pocket costs in terms of what people spend are actually lower than in most of the countries. The big, big difference on the downside is we're a much wealthier country. So we spend a whole lot more on healthcare than other countries do. Maybe twice as much per person. Yeah, so I wanna I wanna I wanna sort of zoom in. There are a whole bunch of details there. And I think in some senses that's the you know the arch of the, the arc of the whole conversation. And I wanna zoom in. Let's start with you've written about this sort of idea that America actually has four different healthcare systems, not just, you know, not 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 just sort of one system, but four systems that are more similar to healthcare systems in other countries than they are to each other. Can you give us just sort of a 10,000 foot view of how people get health insurance, healthcare today, how people pay for healthcare today? Yeah. So I think the main, when people think about employer, American healthcare, they're probably thinking primarily about employer-sponsored health insurance. That's the main way that working adults get healthcare. About half of the population, about 150 million Americans are employed or have a spouse or have a parent that's employed. And that's your typical, your, your job gives you health insurance. Your job tells you, this is the plan we have. Like, we have Aetna, enjoy. Or we're going to have United this year. And people are like, okay, I guess it's better than nothing. Or people are just given health insurance by their employer. And that's the experience that most people I think in America have, or at least a slight majority of people in America. And, so, you know, we think of capitalism as like this active thing. Individuals are in control. And, that, you know, people get to choose and people get to decide and people get to control their own money. And there's a sense in which this is the opposite of capitalism. It's not you get, you get to control. It's a very passive experience. Your, your HR guy tells you every year, this is what you got. Your benefits aren't as good as last year. The costs are higher. It's like the opposite of what we like to think of as like a capitalist experience. So I think people will find that very unpleasant in many ways. And, and there are good reasons for for being unpleasant. It's a, there are definitely legitimate criticisms that can be made of that. And then we have probably another 60 million Americans who are in Medicare, which is a, you could call it a dual payer system. The government pays for about 70% of healthcare costs for people who are in Medicare. Is paid through taxes. The government sets fees and buys all the services and reimburses. And then people can basically pay for the 30% out of pocket or they buy supplemental insurance. Then you have another, I think it's like 70, 80 million people who are in Medicaid, which is like the single payer system that we have. And, that, and that's a system where, where basically the government pays for everything. Like there's no out of pocket costs in Medicaid. There's no premiums but you only get it if you're low income. And it feels like a single payer system. It basically says, we're going to pay for these doctors, we're going to pay for these hospitals, and we're going to pay for this Medicare, and that's it. And you don't get any more than that. So that's Medicaid. And then if you don't get any of those three, then then it's starting to look less good. Those three are, are each good in, in different ways and will give you good care and for the most part protect you from high costs. But if you're not if you're not on one of these three big islands of healthcare in America, then you have to buy your own coverage from from the individual market or the, the Obamacare market, and that's really not been a great experience. Then you get like, well, you used to get huge the risk of denials due to pre-existing conditions, 
You used to get you, you, you used to get maybe reasonable premiums. Now you get no denials due to free existing conditions, but huge premiums, like premiums that could be eight thousand dollars a year, deductibles that could be about the same level. So that's you're spending ten, fifteen thousand dollars before you're getting any care paid for. And these are often networks that don't cover all the best hospitals, and it's not a great experience. And then you might just decide, well, that's not really worth it. I'll go uninsured, and and that's the alternative. And you kind of pay out of pocket, or the hospital maybe takes care of part of the bill, depending on your income. And that's also not a great experience. So there are all these, these I would say, like the three main islands of coverage, which feel a bit like different healthcare systems in other countries. And then there's the gaps between them and the individual market, which really don't feel so good. And, and, and when people complain about American healthcare, they'll complain probably about, about that latter situation. So let's just talk very briefly about about the you know the the cross sectional variation the the American international context. I think there's a there's there's a popular perception that there are two systems of healthcare in the world. There's American healthcare and then everybody else, which uses government run healthcare, whatever the heck that means. Can you talk about particularly in other developed countries how our system of healthcare providing upcoming healthcare costs compares to them? Yeah, I mean that that's a good that's a good question. I think it kind of alludes to the idea of the the Sanders campaign, Bernie Sanders campaign, where he's trying to say you got the United States, which is crazy, and everyone else does it this other way, and then he points to Canada, and so like the idea with Canada and the idea of single payer healthcare is that the government is basically the sole payer, the single payer, either the government's paying for it or nobody's paying for it. The government is sort of has a monopsony. It buys everything and then it distributes it according to whatever mechanism it wants to use. And basically, that's really only what happens in Canada. Canada's really pretty unusual in that respect. I mean, some other countries do that. But Canada's pretty unusual in the sense of not really having widespread private insurance for, for hospital care, physician care. Even England has... You, you you have many people, you have a big chunk of the population that will buy private insurance to pay for what the government doesn't pay for. And so I would say in most countries in the world, you basically have a mix of private insurance and public insurance. And we have this as well. We have about half of people covered by private insurance and half of people in, in entitlements. Other countries have a different mix, but I think every country in the world, except for Canada and maybe even Canada, in some respects, are, are basically in the business of trying to figure out what can we get private insurance to pay for? And that being the case, what can we get the governments to do on top of that? Or in some situation, in some cases, in some countries, it'll be the other way around. So the government, the government will be like in there first, and then private insurance will come in and say, try and fill in the gaps of what the government can't provide. So you sort of have these, these two approaches. Britain is definitely a country where you have the government is like, in there first, providing something to everybody, but falling way short. And then private insurance comes in. We're kind of like the opposite direction. We have like private insurance come in first, and then the government comes in second and says, well, what what can we do that private insurance doesn't do? So it's more kind of coming towards the middle from opposite directions. Right. Well, so one, one obviously big question is, and Charles alluded to this in the opening, why does healthcare in the United States cost so much? And, you know, in particular, I'm curious how much of this is structural and economic forces that cause the cost of care to be higher? And how much of it is just that we 
have higher expectations and demands for medical care, which then, you know, causes us to just demand better care and then like, that, that costs more money, right? You know, I mean, one way of looking at this is, well, if you want healthcare costs to be lower, just don't ask for care that's as good and then they will be lower. Like, like so can you talk about that dynamic and the relative balance of forces there? Yeah. So I would say that the big fundamental thing that underlies why the United States is different to other countries in healthcare is that we're a significantly wealthier country than other countries. And so firstly, like our demand for healthcare and our ability to spend on more better quality healthcare, newer procedures, newer drugs, it is just kind of off the charts. Like we, we have just have this much, much greater appetite and ability to spend than other countries. And so on the one hand, this gets us access to more stuff, more procedures, better quality procedures, less rationing. On the other hand, it means that if there's some kind of inefficiency in our system, quite often the policy responses be like, eh, who cares about the inefficiency? Let's just throw more money at the problem. Let's just increase spending or like let's just add on a, a public subsidy or, or initial payment. And so we tolerate a greater degree of inefficiency than many other countries would. A good example of the kind of trade-off where this becomes really visible is if you think about something like hospital equipment, like an MRI scanner. So an MRI scanner will cost about one to $2 million. And so your average price of an MRI scan is basically how much you're spreading this fixed cost over a large amount of patients. How many patients are you getting through the door for every MRI scanner? And Canada is very, very good about this. They're very, very careful about making sure that they have limits on how many MRI scanners are allocated to each province. And the best way to make sure that an MRI scanner is used intensively 24 hours a day or at least like way throughout the day is to have waiting lists, right? It's almost to have excess demand. Right. And if you've got more people wanting an MRI scan than you have actual MRI scan appointment times, then if someone doesn't show up through their appointment, you can put someone else in and, and, and really have, really max out. We're kind of at the opposite end of that. What we'll do is we'll basically require insurers to cover uh, and have Medicare cover basically MRI scans, pretty make them available everywhere, including in like the super rural places like rural Montana you will be able to get an MRI scan in rural Montana. Now, the thing is, if there, there aren't a huge amount of patients in, in rural Montana, and so this gigantic fits fixed cost, and so much of healthcare is fixed costs, especially hospital costs, is, is just not spread over so many patients. And so we need to find the money for that. And so the, it's a thoroughly inefficient way to do things, but because we're a much more affluent country, we're able to find the money for it and, and tolerate it. And if you ever propose taking a, or making unavailable MRI scanners in rural Montana or wherever, you get gigantic political blowback. And because we're at an a more affluent country, we can basically afford to do it. And that is really the underlying dynamics that makes the United States fundamentally pretty different to other countries on healthcare. Is that just we're we're so much more tolerant about that kind of issue, that kind of trade-off than other countries are. It's interesting because 
it sounds as if the, the causal story here is affluence almost leads to a kind of egalitarian intuition where we think, wow, it would really be unfair to deny, you know, anyone in this rural, you know, part of part of the country access to an MRI machine on demand. But then because we have that egalitarian intuition, you get all these inefficiencies, which then can in certain ways, you know, critics would argue, you know, make the system unfair and not as egalitarian for other people. I mean, what do you make of that dynamic? So, I mean, so egalitarianism has two aspects to it, right? Yeah. There's always the raising the floor aspect of it, and there's the lower, lowering the ceiling. Right, yes. right. So I think that's right insofar as you're talking about raising the floor. We're definitely sensitive to raising the floor. We don't really do lowering the ceiling in the United States when it comes right. to healthcare. Other countries do. That is another big difference. Yeah. And yeah. that then again results from, from our affluence. So I wouldn't say that the affluence leads to egalitarianism sure. as such. It just means we're more tolerant sure. of, of yeah. this inefficiency, both in egalitarian and in egalitarian ways. Well, I was, I, what I was going to ask is a, a related but slightly distinct question, which is that the American, the American healthcare system is generally thought about as more or generally characterized as more free market than, than single-payer systems or than, than dual-payer systems or partially government-run systems. And so it's sort of interesting that you characterize it as less efficient. Customarily, we think about, you know, price signals make it more likely that resources would be used more efficiently, or mean that resources would be used more efficiently. What What's the disconnect there? So, I mean, there is a sense, I mean, efficiency is, is a concept that has different aspects to it, right? And I guess the, the key underlying feature here is diminishing returns. So if you wanted to save the most lives per dollar spent in healthcare, what you would do is you would say the only thing the healthcare system covers is antibiotics, right? For, for, a, for every dollar that healthcare system would spend, you would probably get like 90% of the life-saving that modern medicine does. And everything that you're spending beyond that is kind of very rapidly diminishing returns. Then you're kind of getting into maybe statins that have some kind of efficacy. Then you're getting into all kinds of other, other drugs. Then you're getting into surgical procedures. Then you're getting into orthopedic procedures that don't really do anything for life expectancy, but are you know still very important for other reasons. Then you're getting into things that are quality of care, access to care, things that have a marginal health benefit in terms of efficiency on the health margin, but are also like have convenience is a real thing. Like people, like say you live in Montana, you don't, a lot of people don't want, most people don't want to go to Chicago or, or Atlanta for surgery. That's a real gain. And so efficiency from an aggregate plus point of view isn't the only thing that we care about. Being austerity is, extreme austerity is always efficient from a certain way of looking at things. Right. I mean, in some way, I mean, another way to put this is right, it, it, a point that Oren Cass has made, but anytime you have to talk, you talk about efficiency, though, the question is efficient at what, right? And if your goal is just, you know, maximizing consumer welfare, that's one way of looking at efficiency. If you think Oren uses the example of wanting, you know, workers to have good jobs, right? And says that's a different desideratum. And if that's your goal, then what is efficient will look fundamentally different. And I take it the same concept basically applies here. I mean, just real quick, 
this this obviously gets into a, a deeper philosophical territory, and I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole. But I mean, it seems to me that we, with healthcare, there are different desiderata, right? We care about just the security of knowing that we'll be insured and we won't have our life savings wiped out if we get sick. We also care about having good quality care, right? You know, and we even, you know, there, there's also differences even within the high quality care. Some at times we care more about just, you know, being physically comfortable. Then there's things about prolonging life, which may actually make us less comfortable towards the end, but still enable us to keep going, right? So can you talk about maybe how, what you think the sort of American public's main kind of desiderata are, right? And then how efficient the system is at delivering each of those things. Because I mean, I think there's there's different things and it's better at certain things than others. Yeah, well, I, I think- the very yeah, easy that's, question. That's a great question. The I, I think your average voter is quite reasonably being pretty pragmatic about this. They want, they want more on every dimension, right? Except for cost. Uh, so they want, and, and people ultimately, and, and, and you know, people ultimately want fundamentally incompatible things. And it's the job of the political, I mean, the essence of a political process is you have to reconcile incompatible things. Mm -hmm. So like if you, the American people want access to the best care, they want no rationing, they want no waiting lists, they want as much innovation as possible. They want the lowest taxes they can have, the lowest out-of-pocket costs, the broadest networks, the lowest premiums. And so there are obviously there are some pretty obvious trade-offs between between all these things. And I mean, it, it is the job of the political process ultimately to kind of to kind of deal with these trade-offs and kind of arbitrate between them. I think fundamentally why I think markets are important is that when a political process deals with trade-offs, it kind of it responds to interest groups more than the patients. And so it ends up, if you're trying to deal with paying, paying physicians, who's the people Congress will hear from? It'll hear from the physicians. If, if Congress is trying to figure out who to, how much to pay hospitals, if it was up to Congress entirely to figure that out, it would hear from hospitals or the device manufacturers or the drug companies or, or, or whoever. And why I think ultimately you want to have the patients basically as spending the money is that they're ultimately taking, it's ultimately the patient's interest that you're trying to serve. And it's, it's the consumer's interest. Like, and, and the individual is going to make a more reasonable choice about weighing an extra thousand dollars of premium versus the having to travel further for, for, for surgery. Like that's a choice that is somewhat subjective, but ultimately balancing goods, they're kind of internalized or almost entirely internalized. And an individual is ultimately going to be more focused on balancing those choices than the political process, which is an interest group driven process, which is just going to end up inflating the inefficiencies over time. Well, so, so in, in some sense, it, it, it almost seems like your argument is that by taking healthcare out of the kind of political or, or democratic process and putting it more in the hands of markets, you, you actually paradoxically make the system more democratic because each individual has more of a say. Whereas if we entrusted it to the allegedly democratic process, 
in practice, right, it would be interest groups who actually speak for a far smaller set of the American public. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of markets is you let people, yeah. they, you, you fundamentally trust people to pursue their own welfare better than kind of right. a loose political process. So yeah, I certainly agree with that intuition. Yeah, I, so 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 I do sort of want to ask. I mean, I think it's 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 novel that, or it's 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 peculiar that intuitively we think about health as something that's sort of bought and sold, or healthcare services is something that's bought and sold. Except also, some people think that they should not be bought and sold. That this is something that will take out of the hands of the market. And it seems like as you're describing it, the reality on the ground is sort of a mix where the political process adjudicates adjudicates how we prioritize the competing goods. And I guess I have a, a historical question, which is, which is how do we, how did we get to that point? So, you know, for example, employer-provided health insurance is largely a, a choice of the tax code. Like that's that that's why we have that. But in, in in a grander scheme, you know, what is how how do we end up in a world where your health insurance is or how your health insurance, you know, how how you pay for health products is and that that's a trade-off is decided by Political process rather than by individuals. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd say that everywhere healthcare is always bought and sold. Like nowhere do doctors, I mean, except for, you know, in extreme circumstances, do doctors work for free? Nowhere are hospital services provided for free. Even when they're they're not free to the patient, you know, hospitals are full of equipment, of staff, of, of machinery. Like all these things need to be paid for. There is always going to be a question of who is doing the paying but, and, and on what terms. But the question of we're always in the, in, in the, in the domain of someone is paying for something. So, I mean, it's, we're, this, is not a, this is not a matter of things being provided for free. That doesn't get you very far. You, you're not going to get much health care out of the goodwill of, of, or out of physicians doing things for free. They certainly wouldn't be able to have much of a career if they did all that care that way. Historically, so I think we have, historically, I think what has happened is that throughout, well, healthcare is very recent compared to a lot of industries. Until the end of the 19th century, healthcare was really not a, certainly not a big business, certainly not a big part of the economy. And main reason for that was that it often wasn't very good. Like we're only just historically speaking by the end of the 19th century, coming close to the germ theory of disease and understanding of sepsis and understanding of, of modern hygiene and of how to, you know, I think it was saying like until about 1910, an interaction with a physician was more likely to make you sicker than healthier. And that really was a, a gigantic stigma for the healthcare system as a whole until very, very recently. The hospital was, was a place that would look after people who were dying that had no one else that would look after them. If you were affluent middle class, you would basically not go to a hospital. If you, if you have surgery was extreme, you would have amputations without anesthetic. Like this is, this is really... A doctor is someone you want to stay away from. And that really remains the case fairly well into the 20th century. Really, for the first decade or two, hospitals are, you know, hospital fees are, are very small. They're mostly charities that look after people. They have no one else to look after. And then you have the development of, of like, antiseptics, 
sorry, my antiseptic practices, anesthesia, suddenly makes surgery more possible. We start having modern scientific methods on uh, on medicine. And so healthcare becomes a real good that people are willing to pay for. And so the question is, how do we pay for this? For the first couple of decades, people are paying out of pocket, but then the development becomes really quite substantial. There are some really useful surgical services that can be performed and they get very expensive pretty quickly. And so the question is, how do you, and, and, the, and the amount of money involved becomes so substantial that people can't really pay out of pocket so much. And most people can't pay out of pocket so much. So hospitals start creating insurance companies and insurance companies start off out of the hospital industry. The hospital industry is looking for a way to basically cover its costs, and it begins selling hospital insurance to people. And this is before World War II. It just really starts to get going. Then what happens in World War II, as you, as you noted, is, is that there are price controls. Inflation is a big problem. But an exemption from the price control and an exemption from the income tax, which is also really getting going during World War II, is for pension, employer-sponsored pensions and employer-sponsored health insurance. And so during World War II and the decade afterwards, employers, when they can't increase salaries, they start providing these ancillary benefits, health insurance and retirement benefits, pre-tax. And so those become very substantial. And health insurance goes from saying that maybe 10, 15% of the population has to saying that 50, 60% of the population has. I think the tax I think health insurance would have grown rapidly anyway, but the fact that it's tax exempt really influences why employers are in control of it. And then after the war, I think Congress kind of looks at this and says, well, this is actually a good thing. You know, it's a good thing that employers are providing health insurance to people. It like gives people access to care. It funds our hospital insurance industry. It provides funds for the expansion of this industry. And we want to support this. And so we, let's keep this tax exemption going. I think that's actually quite a reasonable, just a pragmatic policy approach. And that really has led to, and has sustained the dominance of employer-sponsored insurance until today. And so we have like 50% of the American population covered by employer-sponsored insurance. What happens in the 1960s is that that kind of hits the ceiling. And it becomes very clear that there are a couple of groups that aren't ever going to get covered by employer-sponsored insurance. The main one is the elderly, obviously, people who are retired, they're no longer employed. They don't have employers once insurance, and that's why Medicare gets created. And the other one are people in who are at the bottom of the income spectrum who have who's who sort of have well disabled, first of all, people who are low-income families. And so Medicaid gets created for this group. And over time, as the elderly share of the population has increased, Medicare effectively been ex has grown. And as health insurance has become more and more expensive, and we could talk about why that is, um, Medicaid has grown because the share of the population that can't afford the premium, which might've been a couple hundred dollars for a yearly premium a few decades ago, we're now talking about thousands of dollars, maybe tens of thousands to cover a family. And so the, 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 the unaffordability of healthcare has become a bigger issue. And that's kind of dragged up the size of the Medicaid program and other public subsidies for healthcare. Yeah, so 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 part of I mean I think part of the part of the interest in the political economy of this and actually Aaron Aaron you wanted you you've asked about this before I Aaron said want to talk about a specific political implication but you know I think I think when you have a patchwork system it's much easier and this is a very American thing it's much easier for 
medical issues, issues of medical ethics to become individualized, right? It's it's much harder to regulate them. So Aaron has talked before about one reason there's much greater backlash to gender ideology in the UK is that everybody pays for everyone else's health insurance. And so everyone pays for everyone else's gender transition under the NHS. So there's a, there's a, significant, there's a significant way in which aggregating all of that spending into a democratic sustainable entity means that you know, the, the bioethics, cultural related bioethics issues become much more directly adjudicated as opposed to everyone going their own way. Do you think that's a, an accurate description of the dynamic? And if so, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I, I think if we're talking about like th- that kind of surgery, for instance, I mean, the demand in the United States isn't for people to be allowed to buy their own gender transition surgery. That's uncontroversial. The demand is to make group employer plans pay for it or entitlements. So I, I think, so I'm not quite sure that that's what's really going on. I, I think it, it's entirely uncontroversial if, if if it was people paying out of pocket, but that's that's exactly what they don't want to do. I think the, the, the political demand is that it should be a benefit mandate collectively on everyone's insurance plan. And I would say actually one of the reasons, well, I'd say that there's two fundamental reasons why that's that might be easier here than in Europe. One is that everyone hates insurers because they're a middleman and they're easy to pick on. And so people have this illusion that the insurance company is paying for it rather than it's just going to be pushing everybody's premiums at the end of the year or, or next year. So there's this illusion that the money's coming out of nowhere. And, and I would say, secondly, it's what, what I sort of talked about earlier, is that the United States is just a much wealthier country. And so... Here, you know, the healthcare system is so much money. If some of it goes to, to gender transition surgery, it's, it's just another drop in the ocean. Well, I mean, you go I, to I, Britain, you look at Britain, they can't staff ambulances. People are being left to die in the hallways of hospitals because right. there's no money, there's no nurses. They're just extreme austerity. And so people are extremely sensitive to the fact that if there's money for this thing on the left, then it's not going to go to that thing over there. And so it's it's a it's a it's an arena of extreme scarcity, which, which I think that's fundamentally the big difference. Because with insurance, the, the cost is collectivized here as well. Like if you work for General Electric and someone at General Electric is getting has has the surgery covered as part of their insurance, the cost is being covered collectively by General Electric employees in their premiums. Right, which is why I think if you try to mandate that all insurance plans cover this, you know, that that would be controversial. But I mean, I think the difference, as you say, is is partly that in Britain, they're just, they're rationing more, which among other things means that they just are economically incapable of giving people gender transition surgery on demand. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. It's like just a structural barrier to kind of the gender affirming care model, even if they wanted to do it, they couldn't. I mean, but I also, I, I mean, and this isn't just about sort of, insurance but like the actual hospitals too in the nhs are like like everything in britain it's it's, it's more it's not just it's not just single payer right it's it's socialized medicine and that well, so britain has actually moved away from having every hospital owned and operated by the state so th- that was the case probably 30 years ago now a lot of the NHS is actually contracted out to private hospital chains. I forget the, the, the 
one of the main ones actually is is the hospital team that comes out of Tennessee that Bill Frist is associated with that owns a number of hospitals that, that contract with the NHS. So the NHS has actually gone a long way away from from just relying on on hospitals that it owns, which was the case thirty years ago, certainly. So I, I, I think we want to do closing comments in just a little bit. But before we do that, I'm going to talk just a little bit about your work on on moving more in the direction of of individual of individuals paying for for the cost of healthcare, which I think is sort of a an underdiscussed approach to mitigating costs. That sort of you know it's 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 sort of the the complete other direction from going to the single payer system. Can you talk a little bit about? And this is really in sense of how you think that we can make the American healthcare system better. I want to just take an opportunity to talk about solutions. You've written a little bit about shifting individual control, shifting shifting ownership of insurance even away from, you know, ownership of healthcare costs away from companies towards individuals. I think you know that's sort of on the on the other end of the solution spectrum for Medicare for all. Can you talk about that and more broadly how you think about improving the system given the set of trade offs you posited? Yeah, I, I think the essence of it is really. Um... No one really likes employers being in charge. No one really likes your employer telling you which doctors are going to be covered, which doctors aren't going to be covered, which healthcare plan you're suddenly going to get in January or, or whenever. And people will be more comfortable like being in charge of these decisions for themselves. But I, I also think that the main reason why you might want to do this is that it really could help us on cost. Now, you think about like when... An individual buys insurance. They want to go to the insurance that is giving them the best value, the best healthcare for a certain amount of cost. And that basically empowers the insurer to go out and figure out which doctors am I covering that's giving the best value for money, the ones which hospitals aren't letting their costs get out of control, and where can I deliver healthcare cost effectively? And so an individual really cares about having maybe one or two doctors that they care about, maybe their, their primary care provider, their specialist, someone for their spouse or their family, and then maybe their local hospital, maybe a regional medical center, maybe some specialty care providers as well. But for 90% of the network, people just don't care. People don't care who's in their network beyond a few, maybe half dozen providers they, that, that matter to them. And that really empowers the insurer to be very aggressive in negotiating over rates and payment terms and allows them to really keep a lid on costs. Now, that just doesn't work with an employer-sponsored insurance system because an employer is will typically have dozens of people working for them, maybe right around the metro area. All these employees are going to have different doctors. They're going to have different hospitals. They're going to have different specialist needs who are all affiliated with different medical systems. And so an, an employer, when an employer goes out and tells its insurer to buy a pack, package of medical services, it basically has to have every physician group, every hospital system in its network, which gives all these medical providers the ability to basically set the fee right up high, name a price as high as they want, and gives no leverage to constrain the growth of costs at all. And then there's the fact that, you know, when you leave your job, you lose your health insurance. You're being told what your insurance is from year to year. You have no say in the matter whatsoever. Your benefit package is not something that you chose. The premium network trade-off is not one that you chose. The degree of managed care, the degree to which certain feature the there are sometimes features of insurance that are a little bit annoying, like claims reviews, but they really save thousands of dollars. Now, it's one thing if those savings go to you, 
But if the savings go to your employer, people just sort of like, I don't want this. And that makes it very, very hard for an employer to constrain costs and to operate a good health insurance system. And employers don't want to do this. Like if you're an HR department, the last thing you want to do is have to deal with half of your employees, like talking to them about why their cancer doctor isn't covered in the network. And you don't really want to learn about their intimate medical details and like have to have complaints from staff members who are probably in really anxiety-filled life situations. Like you just don't want to deal with that. And so it'd be better for employers as well as for individuals if individuals were put in, in charge. Yeah. I feel like that's a that's a good place for us to segue to closing thoughts. Aaron, what's your do you do you understand do you understand the healthcare system perfectly now? Do you do you get it? My under I I understand it one percent more than the point oh 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 one percent that I already understood. So, so great in, growth in percentage percentage terms. Yeah, I mean, look, I I I uh, in terms of closing thoughts, I would say I I, I was very interested in the the question of democracy versus markets because i i do think this is that just i hear this on the left all the time that oh well it's not democratic and you know medical for all like you know more government will make it more democratic and i think you know chris does a good job of of providing pretty just clear simple reasons to think no in fact sort of the more explicitly or formally democratic it is the less actually or substantively democratic it might be. And I think that's just an interesting trade-off, both to think about in the healthcare context, but also to think about in the context of other institutions. Yeah. Charles. Yeah. I mean, I buy the, you yeah. know, markets are often more democratic than democracy. Thesis. My, you know, I think, I think part of what I expected to get out of the conversation, I'm glad we got out of the conversation is, is just sort of the key insight that we're always making a quality price trade-off and, and, you know, health expenditures in the United States can in part be understood as a quality, as as choosing quality over price. We could have a system that had a lot less quality. We didn't talk about innovation and paying for innovation, how the US subsidizes everyone else's healthcare innovation, which I think is a pretty big deal. But, you know, I think I think we often don't have a sense of what we pay for. And I think Chris does, you know, Chris did a pretty good job of communicating that sort of key insight of, well, part of how the system works is that we are paying for a certain quality, you know, you can call it inefficient, but we're paying for a certain quality of service that people aren't interested in pay that, you know, pe people are not able to pay for in other places and the benefits of living in a rich country. Let's, let's do, let's do some light recommendations. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Sure. Well, it's only tangentially related, but uh, since we're talking about health, free association health makes me think of the pandemic and the pandemic makes me think of fictional zombie pandemic. Which of course makes me think of I'm HBO. Gonna ban, I'm gonna put a ban on you recommending television shows. Okay, well, you know what, Charles? Not all of us have time to read really intellectual books every week. Time okay? to do anything. Some of us work hard. All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Dedicate his life is harder later. Anyway, no, but I did actually. I, I I did start watching this new HBO show, The Last of Us, and it it does, in my view, live up to the hype. It is quite good, and and it yes, you'd think, oh, it's a zombie show. How good can it be? It's so far, it's been significantly better and more thoughtful than any other zombie show I've seen, including The Walking Dead or, or things like that. Yeah, it's good. That's, that's oh. my not very intellectual, but nonetheless heartfelt recommendation. <laughs> I'm in the middle, speaking of books I don't have to read, I'm in the middle of revisiting Charles Murray's Losing Ground, the 1980 Manhattan Street product. By the way, his his 
study attack on the great society and its adverse consequences, which I, I'm, I'm reading for, for another professional obligation, but I think is, is really interesting, both as a text, but also I think more importantly as a, as a work of mid-20th century social science that sort of epitomizes a particular style, helps, helps produce a particular style of, of social scientific argument. Which has sort of gone out of—I wouldn't quite say it's gone out of vogue, but is is a thing that particularly people on the right aren't very good at thinking about, not a style that they're very familiar with. So I recommend the book both as a both for content, but also for for form. Charles, one reason I recommend television is because usually that will avoid me getting called racist. <laughs> but you just decided uh, to recommend fine. Charles. Sorry, yeah, I mean it's a good book. Wow! Wow. That's fine. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I just, I just want all of our listeners to know, I did not know he was going to say that. I just have really triggering, you know, I'll Chris, go, Chris, I'll go you, IPOC for forgiveness after this this conversation. That's fine. That's fine. Chris, do you have any recommendations for our <laughs> listeners from your own work or others? You can. You will not be canceled for it. I, I don't think it would make a good TV show, but The Logic of Collective Action is really the book to read by Mansur Olson about... Yeah. Like why it is that the political process is just fundamentally unrepresentative when it, when it gets down in the, in the nuts and bolts of things. And I actually think, you know, so that book was written, I think, in the 80s about economic issues like healthcare. Why it is that healthcare gets dominated by doctors and hospitals fighting for higher fees rather than patients. But I actually think like a way to reread that book is, is an explanation of the culture wars. If you want to predict who's who wins different battles in the culture war, bet on the concentrated interests, mm-hmm. not the diffu- not the diffuse interests. Every time, anyone who and, and and Olson's argument is basically the there is a fixed cost to organizing in politics. If you're a concentrated group that has an intense benefit or local benefit from a political change, you will bear the cost of organizing. And so you will dominate politics and practice. You will be, you will be lobbying. You'll be in the halls of Congress. You will be on TV. You will be putting out podcasts and blogs and and, and whatnot. You will be dominating the conversation. And so this explains why activists are dominating cultural wars, and it dominate, explains the kinds of activists that are dominating the cultural wars. And it, it, I think a lot could be thought of like explaining where we're heading as a society by thinking about not just in like the economic sense, how this distorts our politics, but how in the cultural sense, this logic of collective action kind of fundamentally distorts the way that democracy works. Okay. Well, a, a, a classic recommendation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us in Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, healthcare bills that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again soon.